This podcast has been recorded in the Mianan Nation. We pay our respects to Jagra and Turbul people. We respect their continuing culture, contribution and connections to the land, water and communities. We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Namaste. This is Akashika. Welcome to the third episode of the Diaspora podcast. In this episode, we have a candid conversation with Jim Varghese, AM, who was one of the early arriving diasporas to Australia in the 1960s. Today, as an Australian of Indian heritage, Jim has established decades of leadership experience, including representing Australia on many international stages. Jim is the owner and chair of the leadership company, director of Springfield City Group, current national chair of Australia-India Business Council, chair for Gandhi Salt March, an Australian charity, and on the board of Trade Investment Queensland, amid many other leadership roles he holds in Australia. Jim's journey is magnificent. In this episode, we talk of all things diaspora, Australia, India, the bridges that need to be built for this important relationship. And of course, Jim Varghese AM like never before. Jim also talks about the Australia-India cricket series. Here's a sneak peek, followed by the episode. The Australia of today is very different from the Australia of 1966. Very different. The America of today is very different from times of Martin Luther King. Who would have thought you'd have a vice president of Indian origin? Who would have thought in Australia you'd have politicians of Indian origin? A couple of years ago, uh, his wife and he were rushing to have this really good-looking salads, fresh yeah. salads, in one yeah. of the medium hotel. And they said, Jim, you're not having it. And I said, no. Nah. I said, um, the chances of having a stomach upset for that is quite high. I'm going to go for all the cook dishes. Anyway, they felt violently ill the next day from the salads. Fantastic. And what about the butter chicken? Did you hear the COVID-19 butter chicken story of Melbourne? It went in doubt. I always, um, I always go back to those three frames, actually. I said, well, so what am I actually wanting to 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 get out of this? Uh, um, and what what's happening here with some of the key relationships, depending on what I do? And am I doing the right analysis, which is alignment? Have I listened to the feedback properly? And do I believe I can make a decision here? After having done that process, I always make a decision, and very rarely have they been wrong for want of a better word, that says, okay, following the Morrison-Modi virtual summit, if I was doing an evaluation, say, in November this year, 
what have we achieved in those areas that are, that's been outlined between Australia and India? What have we in Australia with all the bodies that we work with achieved? And we should be able to give a fairly dispassionate, honest assessment and one that empowers us to do better. I have found Australians to be, you know, I, I like that word fair income. They are generally pretty fair income. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, I'm very encouraged that Trade Investment Queensland does in fact take Queensland-India relationship very seriously. Um, it is a very professional organisation, very hard-nosed KPIs, and they are really putting on a front foot to lift the standing of India with Queensland, Queensland government and its initiatives, and to take advantage of the shift towards India. So I'd like to put that on the table, and that has the full full support of the government in moving in that direction. Now, in terms of the ARBC, I guess this is our opportunity in 2021 to translate the recommendations of Peter Verghese, who did the Australian India Economic Strategy, and His Excellency Anil Wadwa. Do you know where is Jackma? Yes. That when you move to Australia, and to date, did you have to convince people on how Australian you are? hats that you wear as the AIBC National Chair on the Board of Trade Investment Queensland, the stalwart of the Indian diaspora community in Australia, and you don't need any introduction. So let's hear from you in your own words all about Jim Varghese AM. Well, I've uh, been blessed with a, a career that has spanned both the uh, public and private sectors, and it's been a privilege to be in the public sector in both the state of Victoria and Queensland, and reaching to the position of Director General for 12 years or so in Queensland in really very, very exciting and challenging portfolios from main roads to education and training to employment and training and to primary industries and fisheries, after which being in the private sector had the opportunity to be the chief executive of the Springfield City Group. That is, of course, Australia's only master plan city built by the private sector creating public value and then had the opportunity after finishing the stint as the CEO of Springfield City Group to have a go at um, retirement for about six months or nine months and decided that wasn't for me. So retirement to me is a state of mind. So I decided having a, uh, a portfolio was a good way to keep both mentally active, but also make a difference to the community. So since that time, I've uh, still chaired the Springfield City Group board and uh, do some uh, work for that great project, but also have directorships with Mind High, which is a startup company, deputy chair of the Puya Foundation in North Queensland, which serves the Indigenous people of Queensland, a very great community. I've been involved with it now for almost 18 years. And then the, uh, of course, the Australia India Business Council, the Trade Investment Queensland, and, and I also assist in some of the work done with the Coach for the Homeless Program and some of the work done with the Order of Malta, which is a global group with the Maltese International and Order of Malta here in Australia. Clearly, you know, this is not retirement at all. And I'm sure this will inspire so many young people out there these days in 
the millennial world, we hear all about, oh my God, I'm already tired, etc. But inspirational journey. What about Gandhi Salt March? We hear you're leading that full wing of Gandhiji's values. And many a times we hear many people saying that you're the walking and talking Gandhi of these days. So how do you think with all the hats that you wear and this charity that you chair, how do you think this creates that balance? Well, I think balance is all about uh, the interdependent harmony between what you feel, think and believe. And the Gandhi Salt March Company and, and that whole move to get the Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi statue in Roma Street when Prime Minister Modi was here. All of this is part of that interdependent harmony between what I feel and think and believe. And those leads you to these other hats. Now, the other hats are simply... I see them as opportunities to make a difference. Unlike when I was working for a CEO of Springfield or as a director general in government, these hats are not driven by adrenaline. They're driven by making a difference, which means the hats don't carry that normal stress that you'd normally get when you hold positions in the private and public sector. So it's been a great breakthrough to be able to, to do that. And in the Gandhian tradition, to be able to combine, for example, daily meditation in, in your morning before you start and being able to look at each day as a day which is has no past, present or future, where you actually can, in fact, work in the moment, live in the moment and bring the past, present and future together. That's beautiful, Jim. So talking about the philanthropic pursuits, as one of the earliest Indian diaspora when you arrived in Australia then, an evolving diaspora today, what do you see the change and the whole transition of how those diaspora challenges and the whole picture has changed. And how do you think we can really make it the inclusive Australia that you have spoken many a times about? Well, I think when we came to Australia in, in 1966, we came on a, uh, my father came on what he thought was a five-year permit, was actually was a three-year permit. And our fundamental aim was really to, to get educated, as most Indian parents did. You know, education is always an extraordinarily hard priority. So the idea was that as many of us, when we had nine, family of 11, mum and dad and nine children, and the idea was we'd get educated and then we did have land and house in the state of Kerala and we'd go back. But as we settled in Australia and, and as we reached the end of our permit, my father had, was at a function with the immigration minister present and he criticised the white Australia policy. And instead of receiving sort of criticism for it, he actually was offered the opportunity to have permanent residency in Australia. That kind of changed the the pattern and the we therefore decided to settle in Australia and, and settling in Australia then was pretty challenging in terms of the Indian diaspora because there weren't many offers at all it was a very small community my mum wearing a sari would, would look out of place in a shopping centre anywhere she was the community we built had a close-knit Indian community here in Queensland during that time since then of course you know we have over 700,000 Indian diaspora in Australia it's much more accepted the Indian community and, and, and their range of cultures and beliefs and of course, uh, the contributions they're, they're making to the community and in a number of areas from health to education to business to real estate and also increasingly into politics as well. So the, there's been a massive change in the way the Indian diaspora has come together in Australia. And that's, some of that is very encouraging and uh, I think augurs well for the future. So did you face any activism or racism or discrimination 
imagine your times when you were that a part of that young diaspora and how do you see in today's world when we have one in 35 people of the indian heritage walking what do you envisage for them i think the i mean i have faced this issue when i was in, at school and um you know i remember the, the words about my parents it's really you have to believe in yourself whenever you face that kind of racism and you simply answer back right, with conviction and energy so when i was in the victorian government for example i joined as a graduate recruit and when people said jim what's your ambition i said i wanted to be a secretary of the head of department i was still a pretty young man wow. <laughs> and uh, people used to say to me jim there's not you haven't got a hope in hades of even reaching the senior executive service because you're of indian origin right? and i would say to them I'm not going to let that be a barrier because the Public Service Act makes it very clear that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race and religion and you have you have appeals you can lodge appeals if you're not appointed. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I did make it to the very high levels of the senior executive service to dep to depsec and then of course coming to Queensland made it director general. So what does that mean? That means that if you believe in yourself and you stand up for yourself and you basically just effectively feel sorry for the person who is in fact making the discriminatory comments because i had said to a couple of them i didn't realize you had such a deficiency in your personality that you had this need to criticize people of other cultures to make you feel better and that was a very powerful line to run uh, with so called intelligent people who you know believe it or not some of that conversations did have a positive impact and i think the legislation government introduced which was also dealing with indigenous australia has also helped in terms of how you manage the racial discrimination issues the racial discrimination act so but we have a major cultural issue and the cultural issue is that we have to be proud that we are australian indians we're not indians in australia Indeed. we are australian indians there is a big difference and being in Australian Indian I am bringing my culture wherever it is north or south of India or wherever of the older Indian diaspora before independence and we're here to contribute to the society but we're also here to live our own culture be it, be it Hindu Christian Muslim Buddhist or whatever and i think that's the kind of australia india identity that we need to develop we do not want to develop an identity where we are indians in australia as opposed to australian indians you know if you look at our community gardens these days there's a sudden evolution of curry leaf plants and coriander mm. well in the mint and the lavender garden so it's mm. really you you're absolutely right australia is indeed embracing the diversity and inclusion scenarios and tell me about the difficult people then and now you've dealt with difficult people in your youth those difficult people irrespective from wherever they come from especially in the big roles that you've held and uh, continue to lead there are you know measures of unethical code of conduct there are frauds there are all kind of people how do you deal with all those people well i've had um, a fair bit of exposure to some of those individuals and i always combine a bit of patience straight talk and then action so i use you know that old business tool the jahari window so essentially four window pane how do you look at yourself how do you want others to see you and the third window pane is how others see you in a way that you don't see the fourth window pane is what you ought to know that you don't know now what you ought to know that you don't know can only come to you if you can see how others see you in a way that you don't see now nearly every difficult person i dealt with is incapable of listening to feedback where you can tell that person this is how we really see you it's not the way 
way you are portraying yourself to everyone else as being a as being a super duper person that knows everything. They in fact don't see you that way. They yeah. see you as um, a person who is extraordinarily difficult, very difficult to get on, and in fact sapping energy from a lot of people around you. Now, when that kind of feedback is given, and the persons or persons concerned say, "Well, that's all rubbish. I'm not going to listen to that," then it's time you said to that person, "It's time you left the organization, whichever organization you're in." So I found that as a tool to be quite good. But the most important part of that is actually to have the courage to tell the person concerned that the behaviors exhibited are not acceptable and that you stand your ground when they threaten you with all sorts of things if you don't follow their way and their approach. And one of the things that I'm very pleased about with AIBC in the last um, in the last four years, particularly, we have adopted a zero tolerance policy for any individuals that move for purely self-interest and not interested in working collaboratively with the organization. And that policy has been paying dividends because we now have some really high-powered volunteers that work very collaboratively. We've gone to a new level and we've even, for the first time, going towards the black in our PNL as well. So I think this is not just about difficult individuals. This is also about how productive your organization is. Every time you allow one of these difficult opportunistic people in your organization, particularly in the voluntary organization, you sap the energy of people that are highly motivated because they, they are put off by the sort of behavior. Yes. Their energy drops and they don't wish to contribute anymore. and the conflicting personalities you deal with in these scenarios, do you think they are impacted by the tall poppy effect syndrome that's very popularly, we can popularly see it in most of the working culture? It is a fact that in the leadership titles, there's always a bit of a competitiveness. And sometimes people lack to see their own capabilities that they are fit for. So how do you think this can be disrupted? Because it's a very negative impact, particularly not just in the diaspora, but just in the in the most of the Australian way. How can we disrupt this for a better world? Well, I think the um, you know the tall poppy syndrome is alive and well across Australia. It's not just with the Indian diaspora, but I think the tall poppy syndrome in some ways is is best overcome back to the principle, the Gandhian principle as well, which is a belief in yourself and your core values. So if you believe in yourself and your core values, wherever that might be from, and whatever perspective, religious or otherwise it is, then you don't really get unduly concerned about the tall poppy syndrome. And what you do is you be yourself. And when you're yourself, you will confront those individuals or organizations that are afflicted by the tall poppy syndrome and you draw them up and you expose them so they can see for themselves how small-minded they are. And that generally works pretty well. You have a concerted effect to say to those individuals, your perspective is extraordinarily narrow. Your 
views of prejudice and you shouldn't be in this role or in this organization promoting this. This is not in the best interests of what we're all trying to achieve as a community. And to my amazement of the years, very many of those individuals get shocked when they're given that feedback because everyone, and this is a cultural phenomenon in Australia, we love to talk behind people's back a lot. But when it comes to actually confronting the person concerned, frequently that person is not even aware that this is what they're talking about behind his or her back. And when actually confronted, their initial reaction is, Jim, that's a whole lot of rubbish. I cannot believe that this is what people think about me. Yeah. And then they'll come back to you a couple of months later and say, Jim, I, I, I really need to apologize for you. I never realized how strongly held those views were until I started to do some research and I was shocked by the response. Now, those were the more intelligent of these difficult individuals. Uh, right. The other individuals just go in a, in a state of uh, narcissism. They basically cannot believe anything about them yeah. could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's a quicksand to get into. And then they're in a position where you don't really have to do anything because just about everyone will see them for what they are. So there's a kind of self-correcting mechanism that yes. takes place. Yes, indeed. And there are also some, I feel, not, not just in our diaspora, but as we are talking all about Australia, they talk a lot, but do little. They're far more promises, but no action. And when you confront them with these scenarios, they just are not willing to accept. So really hoping that in the next few years, under your leadership, we can see more evolutions, more changes for the betterment, not only for the diaspora for a short time, but for a long time coming. So tell me, Jim, how has the pandemic impacted you? What have been your introspections, self-revelations and discoveries? Well, I think that probably the most immediate and surprising impact of the pandemic is that I've been 20% more busier than I was before post-COVID. And that's on all fronts and on all hats. You know, I've moderated a number of webinars, you know, which have provided great connectivity between the state and territory jurisdictions and between Australia and India, for example, in the, in the IBC. But, it, but I've also learned the power of digital engagement and got to appreciate better the person-to-person meetings when you're able to have it. But in the process, I've also noticed higher levels of stress and even depression with individuals that almost solely depend on human-to-human contact. And that's quite interesting because, for example, single people that do not have partners, it's a big challenge for them. And we have several thousand in Australia in that position. And I've also seen the, the really genuine, committed people in our society that serve the sick and persons of different, different able persons. And I've also seen some excellent work by the not-for-profit organizations in meals and serving the disadvantaged. What, what I also found encouraging for me is that I got to understand better the precarious situation of remote indigenous communities, for example, like Lockhart River in remote communities, mm-hmm. and also the contribution they can make in how to cope with COVID-19 on a, you know, on a personal and psychological level. Mm-hmm. And when I look broadly, there's a greater awareness and understanding of the public interest in controversial issues. And there's some very, there are some very confidential issues, you know, ranging from the public interest in terms of closure of borders, euthanasia. And the last point I'd make is that shutting down places of worship, for example, this is serious for all persons who value and celebrate the transcendent in their lives, be it Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, who, whichever persons need a quiet spot in which to connect with themselves beyond where they are now. Uh, I wouldn't underestimate the loss of not being able to go to 
to those places on a regular basis as a significant portion of the population do. Any any hobbies? Did you play a lot of golf? Did you cook more? Or any other creativities that were unleashed in this COVID era? I mean, I like cooking. I do cooking. I do both Indian and Chinese cooking. Mm-hmm. And when I was in the public service and they had flexi time and I was a younger man, I, I did a Chinese cooking course and um, brilliant teacher. But I've been able to use some of those methods to get Chinese Indian fusion cooking. Yeah, Indo-Chinese <laughs> fusion cooking. You, using the Chinese method, but Indian spices. And that, you know, that being very creative of cooks, I do like cooking. I like playing chess. I don't play golf, interesting enough, because golf, although I've got access to golf courses at Springfield, right. but I'm very much into daily morning fitness with my cross trainer, meditative practice at the same time. I quite like watching sport, be it AFL or cricket. And, and of course, I like reading select books when I've got the time to do so. And I like to keep up to date on current affairs, very much on the ball of what's happening internationally, bored at any time. So, if you- so in the post-COVID world, Jim, talking about the new digital world that we are heading into what do you think the real challenges are going to be like oh i think the real challenges are we have great strengths and weaknesses as a community so let me go through some of the weaknesses the rush to supermarkets and the panic buying of toilet paper and basic commodities is is a concern the lack of respect for each other in in an irrational fear of loss of food and shelter on the other hand the outpouring of community spirit and work providing meals and clothing to the needy and homeless has encouraged the discovery of the power of digital connectivity, I think, is a, is a big plus as in this world. The pluses and minuses of having shared digital awareness of prejudices and care and concern for your neighbour. And I say that because unlike you know, the Spanish flu and everything else, the big difference now is that I'm aware hundreds, if not thousands of people who have the same problem as I have. Right? And I'm also aware of shared prejudices. You only have to look at the Trump demonstrations in the US, right? to see how that works. So there's awareness of good and bad. And also, you know, the awareness, the exploitation of some employers by employees because of fears of job security. And that I think, you know, we're forgetting that we're one nation, but we seem to be acting like separate sovereign states. So I think the, from looking at it, on the positive side, the positive power of government intervention through JobKeeper and other excellent support initiatives has been very good. The loss of our commitment to fiscal responsibility, particularly in relation to managing state and federal budget deficits is very concerning. And the failure to understand and support business in ensuring economic recovery. I think that's really a big a big issue from my point of view, from how I look at the world. So when you're looking specifically at the post-COVID world, yeah, when you go beyond lockdown mentalities, we have to learn, and we're in that point now, how to act as one nation, providing effective and you know, I would call swift vaccination programs and making the economic recovery a number one priority, supporting and understanding business. And then I would say that follow the leadership provided by Prime Minister Morrison in strengthening, expanding the trade and investment ties with India. That is an incredibly significant development that has taken place when you look at it, Australia and India from a historical perspective. And then always respecting and caring for the poor, the homeless, disadvantaged and persons of different abilities. But, and last I'd say, use our learning from our digital experience to strengthen human capital and not undermine it.
routine these days like and the leadership style like you know basically you're working from home or do you travel every day what what is it that inspires your team to stay motivated and achieve all that you lead well i um i always uh, try and motivate whoever i work with by use of what i call the three frames i don't specifically spell them out every day but i use them now the three frames essentially is this that if you look at any success you've achieved you look at your own success that you achieved there are three ingredients in it the first which i call the performance frame that you had a very clear picture of the outcomes you want to achieve you could measure it if you wanted to the second is that either by accident or design you can map every key relationship you need to deliver it i call that the relationship frame and the third which i call the alignment frame the structure you worked with didn't get in the way you could deliver it the feedback you received told you were on track or not on track and lastly you believed in your own capability and others to deliver it now i always say to my teams that if you can score three out of five in each of those frames your possibility for failure is very low if you score less than three the possibility of failure is very high so in this COVID period the biggest challenge is is not in the performance frame we all know what we have to achieve in our business outcomes we all pretty much know the relationships that we have to cultivate the biggest challenge is alignment the structure we were used to going to the office every day and following particular routines is is under question marks and the feedback loops because you're no longer you only rely on digitally and you don't have that face-to-face interactions and assessments is very low and you get a loss of confidence in in your capability so the big challenge is in what i call the alignment frame which means that our um, probability for failure is quite high unless that is addressed so then in terms of motivation so how do i do that and through digital communications that we have through committee meetings and whatever done digitally i always check it against these frames to ensure that we're moving ahead now with the aibc have done exactly the same we have got good clear outcomes relationships are good but our challenge is in alignment because the structure we work with always needs a bit of refinement because we're volunteers the feedback loops um You've got to be very careful in how you interpret it. And our capability is dispersed. But if I believe you focus on that enough, you will continue to achieve success and, and the people who are working with you. And then I always say to them, if you follow this, then what you feel, think, and believe will be in reasonable interdependent harmony. Or another way of putting it is that your intellect, emotions, and values are in independent harmony. Now, if both those are combined, you will be able to very easily surf the high waves of COVID-19 without getting drowned in it. So as the National Chair of Australia-India Business Council, and also on the board of Trade Investment Queensland. Do you think we are doing well as Australia's most important trading partner? And where would you like to see more progress? And how is that going to be chartered? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, I'm very encouraged that Trade Investment Queensland does in fact take Queensland-India relationship very seriously. Um, it is a very professional organization, very hard-nosed KPIs, and they are really putting on a front foot to lift the standing of India 
with Queensland, Queensland government and its initiatives and to take advantage of the shift towards India. So I'd like to put that on the table and that has the full full support of the government in moving in that direction. Now in terms of the ARVC, I guess this is our opportunity in 2021 to translate the recommendations of Peter Verghese, who did the Australian India Economic Strategy and His Excellency Anil Wadwa and to translate their work now into strategic actions. So that means from our point of view, I want to strengthen the effective collaboration with the CWR, the Chambers of Indian Industry, FICI, the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, the Indo-Australian Chamber, the Business Council of Australia, the Export Council of Australia, and also Asia Link. Now with that, I'd like to work with those partners and others like Invest India and others to work with Australian government agencies, the Indian government agencies, the Australian state and territory trade officers to increase the trade and investment between our two countries. Now, to give you an example, yesterday I was at the um, at the test match between Australia and India. I was actually representing the TRQ board, but also representing ARBC. We had the ARBC state president there, Nick Senapathy, Peter Verghese was there. We had some Tanya Uni who had up our health chapter and it's a Queensland entrepreneur with lots of Queensland, lots of top Queensland businesses there. And that was a good example of how a trade office can relationally link businesses, business councils together, including the Chamber of Commerce here in, in, in uh, Queensland and enjoy a game of cricket at the same time. So those sort of initiatives are good and it takes advantage of where we are. And the other one, of course, is the Morrison-Modi 2020 virtual summit. We should not lose sight and we are not losing sight of that very important uh, development in maritime cooperation, in cyber technology, mining and processing of strategic materials, the mutual logistics support, defense science and technology, vocational education and training, and water resources management. When you're um, looking at that, our state and territory presidents, our national industry chairs, our national advisors are well-placed to add value to this. And we also have a digital trade exchange in the IBC that we want to really capitalize on this year and also create AIBC business enterprises to create another source of revenue. And I'd like to encourage the development of a trade index with each state and territory and the Australian government. And then I'll repeat something I said before, which is our policy of zero tolerance for volunteers who do not embrace collaboration and a commitment to delivering results. Uh, that's very important. And that policy is finally paired off as we have MOUs with the Business Council of Australia, the Export Council of Australia, and of course, with the government. And one other one that I'd like to see continue is Women in Business, which um, Sheba has been dealing with as our media past chair. It's a great initiative. It's consolidating well. And so I think the ARBC is very well placed to help increase the trade and investment between Australia and India. That's lovely, Jim. So at AIBC, what are the other grassroots initiatives at the soft diplomacy level? Stories that we don't really, you know, hear about. And how are these soft initiatives further impacting positively for both India and Australia and our communities? I think the those soft initiatives range in every state and they were much more pronounced pre-COVID-19. Since pre-COVID-19, we've discovered the powers of webinars. And so we've now been able to really, where there have been issues in every sector from sport to health to education and training, mining to agriculture, we've been able to pick up those initiatives and run them as webinars across Australia 
Australia and India, and with the support of our industry partners as well. So the kind of what was previously you'd call the soft diplomacy bit uh, has now kind of uh, matured and taken advantage more by accident than design and taken advantage of the digital revolution that has unfolded since COVID-19. And what we now want to do is to make sure that we consolidate that. And also we're keeping a much, trying to keep a much sharper focus that we are a business organization, not a community organization. And so being business to business focus, yes, we still have the functions where we can with business and communities, key industries with the Australian India Economic Strategy and Anil Wadwa's uh, complementary industry sectors. And that's where we want to focus. That's where all our energy will be. So, Jim, when we talk about the India-Australia business-to-business forums like AIBC, there are many emerging India-Australia forums as such in both India and Australia that are working with the government and businesses, both very locally. How do you think having too many of these bodies can be a barrier and delay the progress? And how do you think we can do something collaborative, particularly with AIBC? That, that again, is a, is a very good question. And I think if we all commit to business outcomes as per the Moody Summit, then I think the challenge for all of us in all that space with all these organizations of outlines to say, so what are you going to add specifically to those business outcomes. I think we have now reached a point where, you know, grandstanding yourself as, as a business leader without actually the credentials of an organization to put you forward and simply using it for your own ego or for, or for enhancing your own business. I think those days are frankly being shortened. Uh, Post-COVID-19 exposes the Australia India a relationship to a much broader digital level. And we have found, having run over 22 webinars in, in under a year, we have found that our, our profile and communication has gone ahead in leaps and bounds. I don't have a problem with all these other organizations. If they want to add value with us and work with us, happy to have them on board. If they work against us, that's up to them. They'll extinguish themselves. That's the nature of destructive people and organizations. So it's also an occupational hazard. I think take away the Indian label from it, you'll find that's the case across the, the China business end the um, and other UK and other business American. You'll find you have these same issues and have different associations. And our challenge is to try and link them all together by outcomes rather than by personality. So Jim, India is reimagining today. India is reforming the way it operates. Australia has the world's best agricultural technology and practices. And likewise, India too, through its own niche. So the way that the new Agri-Bill has been passed last year and being implemented. How do you think this will evolve India further and eventually help Australia as well? I think that the farming bill is all part of uh, Prime Minister Modi's uh, economic reform agenda. Uh, which the government of India is pursuing. And that is really a matter for the government of India. Now, I still remember once I asked you, how's the Josh? And you mentioned, well, how do you know my son, Josh? And uh, <laughs> you remember that, Jim? Yes, I do. I do. Well, Josh, Josh yes, yes. in Berlin these days. Tell me, how did you deal with any special desi moments when you were representing Australia and India with those high-level ministerial delegations? Well, I think, you know, I've been through a number of ministerial delegations in, in government and non-government. Yes. And um, look, I think on balance, they're all very valuable. The main weakness 
is that we do not follow them up. Mm-hmm. And what post-COVID-19 has done for us in a very positive way, it showed us how you can follow up ministerial visits digitally yeah. right, and go through in some significant detail. Like you know, in the last one with uh, Minister Simon Birmingham in India in February, and then before with, with Barbara and Gujarat, a number of events in India, they were really, really positive events. Mm-hmm. You know, great words were exchanged. But follow-up from here disappeared. Mm. Within six months, people said, what were you talking about, Jim? <laughs> so I think to one of the lessons of post-COVID-19, positive lessons, is that we've learned now how to use the digital, for example, the IBC digital exchange, trade, trade exchange. And you can then pick up every item from ministerial delegations, put it onto that digital exchange and say, now, what's happening with this? Where is it going with it? And we can then quiz all the key relationships from Australian government agencies, state trade agencies, India, the Indian Chambers of Commerce, and the specific businesses to say, are we going to close this or are we going to do a deal? Now, there's a lot of very practical things we can actually do. And so ministerial delegations in the future then become even more valuable because they will be a beacon or a lighthouse for what follows. At the moment, they simply, in my opinion, they tend to be just a lighthouse without any guidance to anyone. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, yeah, that's Australia, India, that's great. But what has come out of it? And, and there has to be a very hard-nosed KPIs, for want of a better word, that says, okay, following the Morrison-Modi virtual summit, if I was doing an evaluation, say, in November this year, what have we achieved in those areas that are, that's been outlined between Australia and India? What have we in Australia with all the bodies that we work with achieve and we should be able to give a fairly dispassionate honest assessment and one that empowers us to do better COVID because, you know, this COVID is right here. It's just not going away. It's not going to go away. And amid the pandemic, there is the COVID vaccine deal, both in Australia and India. Do you think there will be an India-Australia vaccine deal with India being the biggest pharmaceutical supplier to the world? Uh, Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, you're in the right state of Queensland because both uh, Griffith University and UQ have links into the Indian companies that manufacture vaccines. So I think there will be opportunities open up there. One of the big pluses for Australia is that we have some outstanding research across the nation from you know Melbourne to Sydney to Canberra to Brisbane, WA and South Australia. I think this, this COVID-19 and the push for vaccinations has given a bit of a boost to university research. And, um, and we're also very good at what I would use in Australian term, telling what's fair income and what's not. <laughs> for example, what UQ did by saying that, look, this vaccine isn't fully ready. It's got, you know, it's got some issues with it. You may recall that publicity. And so they had to withdraw the, the vaccine from the market, but they're still at it, working at it. Griffith University has also got its links and it's working through. So I think you will find, uh, and of course, in Melbourne, you know, we have some outstanding research facilities as is in Sydney. So when we look at Australia as a nation, we're very well placed 
to work with India to make breakthroughs in this area that can be used in both India and Australia. So 2020 was not just COVID, you know, we had Brexit, Mexit, Trump, Trump, you know, moving on out of White House, Joe Biden, the new elected president moving in, Rocketman, and we've also had a Pigeon Joe that has arrived flying all the way somewhere from Pacific Ocean into Melbourne. So what are your views on how Biden, as America's new president-elect, will impact the relationship both with Australia and India and the Quad? I think the election of Biden and even more so his vice president, Kamala Harris, will have very significant implications for how we progress forward. At this stage, the early signals are a strong support for India and continuation of the current US stance on China. Now, given Kamala Harris's background and her Indian origin, this would be a very interesting one to watch. So I I think you'll see a less aggressive America with Joe Biden, one that's more policy focused in terms of where they're looking to go, but one that will always and this is the, in some ways why we're the, we're the lucky country in some ways, is that it doesn't matter whether it's Trump or Biden, I think the Australian relationship with uh, America will always be very strong. And in this instance, that relationship also translates to India and Japan. And of course, we call that the quad. And that will, I believe, get stronger, not weaker. So I think we're in a, a situation where the change of presidency will just give a change of um, rhetoric rather than a substantive change in what's currently the key relationships. So security boost in COVID-19, which is going to be here for a long time, is so vital. How do you think the marine and the dark cyber underbelly in the Indian Ocean percent really troubling both India, Australia and many other nations? How should that be tackled? Well, I think we've, we, that's one of the first parts of the um, Morrison-Modi virtual summit, looking at that maritime and maritime agreements and the cybersecurity side. I think India is very well placed in the high-tech space. It ranks extraordinarily highly, very, very good competitive basis with Silicon Valley in terms of innovation and all of that. So I think in the area of maritime defense and cyber technology, it is a partnership that will continue to grow and have closer links between um, India and Australia and the United States and Japan. And I think that this will this will be the um, focus as we move to the next four years of the American presidency. And I think Australia, there is bipartisan support for the Quad and for the closer ties between India and Australia in maritime defence and defence technology and cyber security. So look, I think there's a whole world opening up there. We would be encouraging both Australian universities and Australian defence industry to link more closely with India, both at the maritime end and the defence end. In fact, I would like to see, to open the space up with a webinar sometime this year to actually discuss the opportunities and, and where we're at on it. Do you know where is Jack Ma? Yes, I would, <laughs> I would imagine that, that his um, interrogation and confinement is exactly a symbolism of the dangers of dissent within China. And so you can imagine how someone who had spotted COVID-19 in Wuhan would have been treated if it wasn't authorised by the government in terms of talking about it. So it's a it's a very disappointing that that's ha- happened to him. He is a, an extraordinarily creative individual with, obviously, he's a multi-billionaire many times over, but he's also a great thinker in terms of 
you know, how technology can transform lives. And I hope that his, um, you know, confinement doesn't um, lose his um, zeal to make a difference on our planet. We are indeed a very precarious world disorder Jim. And uh, brighter note, you know, coming back to the diaspora, India today has the biggest migrant population in Australia. And today, as you watch the diaspora grow, what are your thoughts when you see a certain percentage of them misuse the Australian opportunity for a beautiful life here? Yeah, now that, that is a that is a, a good question. Uh, I'll, I'll answer it by saying that every group has their share of ferals, be it, be it the UK, the Irish, the Chinese, etc. in Australia. We can learn from them on how to deal with our feral elements as the Indian diaspora continues to grow. And I would say we do not want the politics of every Indian diaspora group transferred from, from India to Australia. And I'll say what I said before, we are Australian Indians, not Indians in Australia. And I think there is a big advantage in being that, by the way. I was at the test match and I was able to enjoy supporting both sides. <laughs> At the, at the cricket. Now, not many people can do that, right? Because if it was a different test match, I would be supporting Australia very passionately and getting stuck into the Brits. But on this one, I was able to enjoy both sides doing really well. So I think in terms of, in terms of those individuals, we have to do what I, what I said before, which is to identify individuals and organisations that are essentially self-interested and purely opportunistic, call their behaviours wherever we can and get them get them to commit to outcomes rather than who is, you know, who is more powerful or who is the more influential personality. So Jim, share with us, what are the 2021 plans for Gandhi Salt Marsh Limited as well? That's a very good question. And, and uh, you know, we're now almost five years old. So our Power of Peace Festival started in Brisbane and Ipswich, Springfield. We had the peace concerts in concert with India. And then, of course, thanks to your efforts, very excellent efforts in supporting those early events, but, but in taking us the lead role in the Bapu Peace Ride, which went from, you know, New South Wales to Brisbane. What was very important about that event that you, uh, that you drove and organised is that it started at a Sikh temple where there were reflections on Gandhi, then to an Anglican church en route, to a Muslim mosque, and then the Gandhi statue where Hindus and Buddhists were there with the service. And then finally at Parliament House, where we all, you know, celebrated the life of Gandhi and even and even picked up John Lennon's Imagine as a slightly different song to finish off with, as well as Gandhi's hymns before. So when you look at that, plus last year's excellent event that you also played a lead role in, in Gayanti, the digital festival, that was extraordinarily successful with the singers from Delhi, the involvement of the Indian High Commissioner, the, we had notables like Father Frank Brennan, Swamiji. I think that was a really excellent way that we kept the spirit of GSML alive. So in 2021, I think we're looking at another Gandhi event that you, of course, will be playing a lead role. I should actually ask you that question as we, <laughs> as we, Pleasure move, and pride. As we, as we <laughs> move to 2021. And I look forward, as we plan our next event, to working with yourself, who has been playing a, an, an exceptionally excellent leadership role, and with our other colleagues, with uh, Nick Senapathy, who's one of our directors and, and president of the Quinton ARBC, and Sham Das, who is president of the Federation of Indian Communities of Queensland, and Chris Jones, who's uh, also very active in conciliation, a whole range with the Indigenous communities. So we're, we're a team, and 2021, we're looking forward to having an event. And there cannot be a, a more important time than post-COVID-19 to really aspire 
espouse the values of peace, nonviolence, and inclusiveness. So we really look forward to 2021 as another opportunity to connect, not just in Queensland, Australia, but globally on Gandhi's key messages for the world. Indeed, Jim. What an extraordinary journey for a long time to continue and cannot wait to be the change that the world wants us to be. On a parting note, Jim, we will do some speed check-ins because Mm -hmm. these are so vitally important as you have been so good in this podcast. So we cannot get Mm. into you. What is your biggest advice to... Aussies going to India and Indians coming to Australia? My advice to them is relatively simple, that uh, if Australians visiting India, go with an open mind, but be respectful of culture and norm. Don't mistake politeness for agreement. And for Indians visiting in Australia, Australia is not India. And be clear in your conversations and don't be offended by blunt answers that at times may be seen as disrespectful. So, but I would say that there is a, a real opportunity to make a difference in what I would call the Australia-India identity and part of the Colombo plan and all of that was uh, which previously Prime Minister Abbott pushed was actually about this improving the uh, the relational aspect between Australia and India and we have so much in common from curry cricket and the Commonwealth we we really need to make an effort now to translate that into really tangible economic outcomes that Prime Minister Morrison had in his virtual summit with Prime Minister Modi so my advice is to both sides This is a great opportunity to learn and to take us forward together, working together to achieve mutual outcomes. And any deli belly moments? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think that the deli belly moment I've had is when I disregarded my own rules and um, I was actually in Barbara and Gujarat and I was there with um, some Australian Indian colleagues and I was having a, a great, a lovely drink of very cold, Faluda. Um, Faluda is a milk drink, as you know. Yes. And, and we, we were in uh, Gujarat and it was nice and cold. And I very sort of unthinkingly said, look, can I have another glass? And about, waited for about 40 minutes. <laughs> nothing, nothing happened. Finally, it came, it was warm. Tasted terrific. But for the next two days, my colleagues and I, we felt violently ill. from the the milk the milk was contaminated obviously and uh and since then you know as i said i broke my own rule my own rule was you simply don't order another one particularly with that kind of time lapse unless you know exactly what you're ordering that's right (laughs) so and that applies across the board you just got to use your noggin similarly if you're going for street food which is another trap to fall into you know uh, be careful what you eat where you get it from and then don't complain if you fall ill. I mean, I, I said to a colleague of mine a couple of years ago, uh, his wife and he were rushing to have this really good-looking salads, fresh right. salads, in, the, in one of the medium hotel. And they said, Jim, you're not having it. I said, no. Nah. I said, um, the chances of having a stomach upset for that is quite high. I'm going to go for all the cooked dishes. Anyway, they felt violently ill the next day from the salads. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And what about the butter chicken? Did you hear the COVID-19 butter chicken story of Melbourne? Yeah, I did. But it was unclear to me why he was arrested. 
So this gentleman who, he was very fond of the butter chicken his mother used to cook. And the only place that would remind him or give him the same taste was this restaurant called Desi Dhaba in Melbourne. Uh So when it was the lockdown, he just couldn't resist his taste buds and he was not allowed to travel, but he drove all the way (laughs) to Melbourne City. Yes, from from Verbi area. He was fined for about... 2000 or for the butter chicken takeaway that he wanted and it became very contagious news all over Australia and India as well. I I, I missed that one. My initial reaction when he first asked the question was, did he breach some copyright (laughs) (laughs) on on the recipe? And I thought that's a bit rich. (laughs) Well, who do you think will win the India-Australian series at the Gabba? Oh, no, that's an extremely good question, given that I was there right up until close of the match. Look, if the weather predictions are right, and there's likely to be a storm, um, I would say that the probability of a draw is quite feasible. Now, a draw by the way, would probably be a a good outcome for India because they retain the, um, you know, they retain the trophy if it's a draw. Oh, interesting. (laughs) So if they can't win, their next best bet is a draw. Let's wait and watch. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be really interesting. (laughs) When in doubt, what do you do? I think when in doubt, I always... um, I always go back to those three frames, actually. I say, well, so what am I actually wanting to, to, to get out of this? Uh, um, and what, what's happening here with some of the key relationships, depending on what I do? And am I doing the right analysis, which is alignment? Have I listened to the feedback properly? And do I believe I can make a decision here? After having done that process, I always make it a decision and very rarely have they been wrong. On a parting note, Jim, the diaspora would like to know that when you moved to Australia and to date, did you have to convince people on how Australian you are? I think many listening to us today would really like to know and your message for the diaspora. Now, look, I think, you know, how Australia, how Australian you are is really a bit of a furphy. I think the more relevant question is how authentic you are in expressing your values and engaging with people different from you, which happens to be the Australian as you characterize them. I have found Australians to be, you know, I, I like that word fair income. They are generally pretty fair income. And if you respond that way without sort of going around in circles and circles, you'll generally break the ice and you will create the Australian Indian identity very easily. We can spend too much time saying, you know, what is the Australian bit that I have to convince when in fact that's in itself that identity is developing. The Australia of today is very different from the Australia of 1966. Very different. The America of today is very different from times of Martin Luther King. Who would have thought you'd have a vice president of Indian origin? Who would have thought in Australia you'd have politicians of Indian origin? Who would have thought in Australia that you'd have so many significant diaspora people in in all aspects of Australian life, holding prominent positions. So they haven't done that by some magical thing, I am Australian, except me as I am. They've done it by being themselves, showing determination and purpose 
living their values and engaging in a constructive and fair income way. And your message for the diaspora and all our listeners today. My message for the diaspora and all the, and all the businesses today is that we need to think very, very positively post-COVID-19. We need to work together. We need to have a shared commitment that we will help our country in its economic recovery in Australia, that we will work with all different communities, different multi multicultural groups to achieve that, that we will help the structures in Australia and work with those structures to help the recovery of our, of our nation, that we will listen with an open mind so we can work collaboratively, and that we believe as Australian Indians that we can make a difference and help Australia through this uh, very dark moment. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Jim. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Diaspora. For more updates and the following episodes, please follow us on our social media and subscribe.